shitty childhoods, and not playing the blame game. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, that is especially the case as we are diving deep. And this episode will probably not have as many laughs as there were last week or that there will be in future episodes to come. But I am confident you are all strong enough to handle it today. We are talking about the experience of growing up in a dysfunctional family, and you will get to hear two different experiences today. I will be sharing about my childhood, and then I will be talking to my friend, Eric. You are in for a treat with Eric. He gets super raw and vulnerable, and I even get him to cry at the end. Tears of joy and healing, I might add, not sad tears. Regardless, you do not want to miss it. So what is the point in dredging up the past and rehashing our shitty childhood experiences? The past is the past. It's time to get over that shit and live in the present. But what if I were to tell you that dredging up the past is the only way an adult child can stop living in the past and live in the present? You heard me share last week that simply having the realization that my dating issues were somehow connected to my childhood didn't change a damn thing. Enter Brian number two and a bunch more pain and insanity. And I compared this to cancer, that learning you have cancer doesn't make the cancer go away. And simply acknowledging our childhoods were shitty doesn't result in any healing We must identify and understand the faulty programming that resulted from our childhoods. And with that being said, I want to talk about betrayal, which is a common resistance that comes up for many adult children as they embark on their healing journey. Many adult children feel that by acknowledging what happened to them as kids is an act of betrayal to their parents. But that's not what this is about. This is about looking at the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are in order to change, in order to reprogram, and not about throwing our parents under the bus. And no, I am not saying that we pretend that nothing bad ever happened to us or we give our parents a free pass. We absolutely must acknowledge what happened to us. We must speak and own our truth. And frankly, not to do so is betraying yourself. But we avoid blaming our parents because of the generational nature of family dysfunction. You see, family dysfunction doesn't just pop out of nowhere. This shit gets passed from generation to generation. I am fairly confident that the dysfunction did not begin with your parents. Our parents are a product of their upbringings just as we are, which is why examining our past is so fucking important because it allows us the opportunity to break the cycle of family dysfunction and not pass it to the next generation. 
So now for the tale of little Andrea. Although I was never really that little, I was basically as tall as the teacher in the second grade and have pictures to prove it. I'm going to be straightforward and say that I have struggled on what exactly I want to share about my childhood. While I've just told you that speaking your truth is the only path to freedom, that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to share the most intimate and vulnerable details about your family for the whole entire world to hear, because perhaps that could be portrayed as throwing your parents under the bus. So I've thought a lot about how do I stay true to my brand of authenticity while also showing love and respect to my parents. But like I said last week, you know, it wasn't until a few years ago that I truly came to terms with the impact my childhood had on me. And that's why I feel it's so important for me to share my experience for those of you who may be in the same shoes that I once was, unaware of the true impact their childhood had on them and the negative ways this is impacting their lives as adults. So I want to talk about that feeling, that feeling from the aha moment with Brian number one, that feeling I had felt often as a child that feeling of intense pain and panic, that feeling like I was going to die if I didn't have that person in my life. Now, I can't remember the very first time I felt this way, but it was around eight or nine, and it was a symptom of my separation anxiety that I had developed with my mom. It started with not being able to spend the night away from home. I was that kid at the sleepover who always got sick right before it was time to go to bed. I'm sure you know that kid. I'm sure some of you were that kid. I would be having a great time, fully intending to stay the night, but then as it got closer to bedtime, a switch would go off within, panic would set in, and I felt like I was going to die if I didn't go home. And then this escalated to me sleeping in bed with my mom every night with my dad sleeping in my bed. And after about a month of this, with my parents trying every bribe and trick in the book to get me to sleep in my own bed with no success, they made an appointment for me to see a child psychologist. And it was in that moment that I became the scapegoat of my family, or what I prefer to call the identified patient, and not because my parents sought help. There were clearly issues that needed professional attention. You see, the problem was what they failed to disclose to the therapist. So I grew up outside of Philadelphia in a suburb called Bryn Mawr, and I was an only child. My dad worked, and my mom stayed at home with me. And by all external indications, we were a perfectly healthy and happy family. We went to church on Sundays. We went on a lot of fun vacations. My mom made me the best lunches for school every day, and my parents were always at my school in sporting events. And by all external indications, I looked like a perfectly healthy and happy kid. 
I was a good student. I was a great athlete. I had a lot of friends and I never really got into any trouble. But in many ways, I was not a kid because the disease of family dysfunction had parentified me. About two years prior to being sent to that child psychologist, the three of us were out to dinner and it was obvious to me that something was off. I could feel the tension in the air. My parents were barely speaking, and at one point, I saw a tear roll down my mom's face. On our way out of the restaurant, my mom took me to the bathroom, and as soon as she shut the stall door, I asked her what was wrong, and that's when she told me that she was an alcoholic. Being that I was seven, I clearly didn't know what that meant, so I asked, and she said that meant she couldn't drink. And nothing was ever the same after that night. I went to bed that night and I woke up the next morning having developed this sixth sense as it related to my mom's drinking and my parents' arguments. I could feel it in my bones hours before an actual incident would occur. My dad traveled a lot for work and when he was gone, I often had to play the role of caretaker. And when he was in town, I was his sidekick. We played detective, searching the house for hidden alcohol stashes or using a paint stick to measure and monitor the levels of each bottle in the liquor cabinet, as if this would make some sort of a difference. It obviously did not. And I also provided emotional support to both of my parents because what was going on in our home was a secret to the rest of the world. The don't talk rule is very common in dysfunctional families. Act like everything's fine. Make sure everyone thinks we're a normal, healthy family. And this just aids in keeping the dysfunction alive and well. Because if we don't talk about the family's problems, this means there are no problems to fix. And in some sick and deranged way, I found this all to be rather exciting. This having a secret from the rest of the world, this getting to play adult and detective and providing emotional support to my family. And it wouldn't be until several years later that I would start drinking and using drugs myself, but I truly believe that my first addiction was to the chaos and dysfunction within my home. I used to get a fucking adrenaline rush, sitting on the stairs late at night, listening to my parents fight. Some kids, they may go hide under the covers or stick their fingers in their ear, but not me. I needed to hear every single word. And sometimes I would even get involved myself. I would barge into the room and scream at the top of my lungs for them to stop fighting. So when I first got sober, I remember asking my mom if they had told that therapist about what was actually going on in our home. And she said no. And that's what I mean about being deemed the scapegoat and the identified patient. I had already learned, though, that the don't talk rule didn't apply to me and my problems. One morning when I walked into my fourth grade class and one of my friends said loud enough for the entire class to hear, Billy told us you sleep in bed with your mom every night. You see, my separation anxiety was the problem. 
as opposed to my separation anxiety being a cry for help, me sounding the alarm bells for what was actually going on at home. Scapegoating is a common diversion tactic and defense mechanism among dysfunctional families, and it qualifies as emotional abuse. By placing all attention and energy on the scapegoat, family members avoid confronting their own problems, their own shortcomings, their own marital difficulties. And it's typically not conscious, but rather an unconscious attempt by a parent to displace their own fears, insecurities, and defects onto their child. And the impact is so detrimental as these kids then spend their lives rooted in fears, insecurities, and defects that were never theirs to begin with. And most adult survivors are clueless that they suffered any abuse at all. And that was exactly my experience. I never considered what I went through as abuse because I thought abuse had to be intentional. And I never considered what I went through as trauma because there was never one single catastrophic event. And I never thought my childhood had a lasting negative impact on me because I've always been able to talk about my experience without getting emotional. But the truth is that what I endured did qualify as abuse, even though my parents didn't intentionally try to harm me, and that what I was subjected to did qualify as trauma, even though there wasn't one single catastrophic event, and that my childhood did majorly impact me, even though I could talk about it without getting upset. And when I say that, I am not saying that my parents were bad parents or that they didn't love me. I know that they loved me, and I love them, and I know that they did the best that they could. And while my childhood did result in faulty programming, there were also many redeemable qualities and healthy programming that my parents ingrained in me too. One of the biggest takeaways I've had throughout my healing journey, and if you're going to take anything away from this episode, let it be this, that coming from a loving family and a dysfunctional family are not mutually exclusive. So thankfully, by the time I got to middle school, I was sleeping in my own bed again, and I could successfully attend a sleepover. But I began to act out in other ways that fell in line with this scapegoat-identified patient role that had been placed on me. And the faulty belief that I was the problem, the faulty belief that there was something inherently wrong with me, took me as its hostage, which you will get to hear all about next week. So now for Eric. And I do want to provide a bit of a trigger warning as his story does include physical abuse. The other comment I want to make is that you may hear us laugh at things that on the surface appear to be no laughing matter. This happens often in AA meetings and 12-step meetings. People may be surprised by the laughter they hear as people share some rather dark shit. Like, how can you think getting five DUIs is funny? However, what I want to make clear is that the laughter is coming from a place of identification, from a place of being able to relate and empathize and not about making light of a matter. So I just wanted to make those two quick disclaimers before we proceeded. So let's do it.
it is my pleasure to introduce a dear, dear friend and fellow adult child to the podcast. Hi, Eric. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am well. You know, I think I remember the first time we met, we I th- we were fast friends. And I think within 15 to 20 minutes of talking, uh, we figured out we bonded on both being an adult child and being a real housewives uh, act. <laughs> yes. Within, yes. And this was a match, you know, made in heaven. I love those ladies. And, I, and I'm talking about all of them. <laughs> yes. And probably a few adult childs in there. <laughs> probably. Probably. The I, 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 I wish I was a member of their family. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you do. <laughs> so, um, I wanted to ask you, when was the first time that you yourself heard the term adult child? And, you know, if you kind of had an adult child bottom, what did that look like for you? So, I think the first time that I heard that was through Wait, my I guess therapist. First, I should say, we didn't say that you were sober. So, you have been in AA and you have 10 years of sobriety. 11. 11, 11 years, okay. yes. Okay, continue. Yep. So the first time uh, that I would have heard adult child, and I'm pretty sure is through my therapist. um, And that was around seven years of sobriety. So um, what had happened was I was having a very, very spiritual year where I was, um, no, I guess this was at eight years of sobriety, where I was um, chairing the Western Roundup Living Sober conference, which I was, it was a big service commitment, you know, it had a lot of responsibilities, a lot of things that were really good in my life. And then I had a a job and a partner and it was very successful. And um, I had been sitting working on my computer um, from home one Friday afternoon, and someone started kicking in our front door. And they just all I heard was this big bang. And I was like, shocked that this was happening like and I didn't I couldn't see what was happening all I just heard was this big bang and then next thing you know the door flew off and I ran into a dark room and then I like I like curled up into a ball and I was like I got after that experience had happened I was like what was that all about I mean yes we were being, it seemed like a home invasion, yes. but it seemed to bring up a bunch of things that I had forgotten and responses that I had forgotten um, were a part of me. And that was kind of like how I grew up at home. So around that time, I started Were you able to, to recognize that, like in the moment that this was like a response that you had had not, as a child? I, shortly after, not in the moment, but shortly after I was like, oh, yeah, I grew up with that, those kinds of sounds, you know, <laughs> like uh, there's a, there was a, you know, one of those stories like uh, your parents might say about like the funny behavior that your kids have. Like there was a story about me, about uh, my, my experience around the first earthquake that I felt and how I was screaming, dad, stop shaking the house. Dad, stop shaking the house. And they think that's a cute story. But I remember oh, that, cute. actually. Yeah, I'm like. I was afraid that my dad was having a violent outburst and that his strength was so strong that he was shaking our house. 
out of a violent outburst. He wasn't in my view. He was outside at the time. And that's crazy if you think about it. <laughs> like, How old were you? <laughs> um, I was probably around six or seven, you know, like, so that was a response. And so looking at what had happened that year at seven or eight years sober, like it was that kind of response where it was like, oh shit, you know, like dad is upset, you know, essentially <laughs> like, and, and what do I do to respond? So I contacted a therapist. I had actually, that seemed to happen because of a little spiritual moment where I went to a birthday party um, for a friend in recovery. And there was a lady there who actually wasn't my favorite person, but they were there and they were like making their way through the room. And I'd known them since I had gotten sober. We had both been in rehab together and they'd stayed sober and they'd been doing their journeying or whatever. And uh, she all of a sudden sat down with me right after that experience. And she goes, how have you been? And then like, I was like, well, I just had this experience. And I told her about it. And she's like, you know, I had a similar experience like this and I got connected to this therapist and, and that's how I got plugged in. And it was weird. We, we only talked about her trauma journey. Um, and, and, and she was feeding me some information that I felt was useful. I look back and think that was like meant to happen, you know, like, and then I went to that therapist and that's where I heard the term adult child. Mm-hmm. And what did you, did you think um, that that meant somebody was living in their parents' basement? Uh, <laughs> well, it's weird because that's a good question. No, I mean, I also feel like emotionally stunted, right? Like I'm, I'm 42 years old. I just turned 42 and I often feel so immature that like, I just hear a term like adult child and I'm like, okay, that's, that might be me. Um, <laughs> I feel like you know, one of the most um, mature individuals that I know. So, well, I I definitely don't feel like that, and and I'm I'm dating someone that is also childlike, even though they are in their thirties, mid thirties, and <laughs> you know, like maybe that's just how we are, you know. So I didn't necessarily know that it was connected to a particular sect of recovery or a concept of dysfunction. I just was like, oh, that's a label that you give to people like us, <laughs> emotionally stunted people. <laughs> Hashtag forever young. <laughs> Who said it's exactly? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so tell me about your dysfunctional family. So it's weird. Um, I remember when I was a young adult, I would look back at my life and say that I had two phases of abuse. <laughs> like um, I had from ages zero, so as far as I can remember, to age 11. Um, I had, my abuse was characterized by a father who was an alcoholic, um, who was physically abusive to me and my mother. And I'm an only child, so there were no siblings. And it was kind of a very isolated home. And then after that, um, when the father was dealt with, when we, we, we actually had to flee, you know, we had to flee um, while he was at work one day, you know, we had to... 
my mom had to come get me out of school and then say, Oh, grab what's necessary. And then go to a house that, you know, he didn't know where we were. Um, after that was that, at age 11. Yeah. At age 11. How far, like how far away did you guys go? And when did your dad, when did you well, we, stayed, we stayed in the same city? We stayed in the same city, but it was uh, just to one of my mom's friends, but not the one that he would have assumed that we were at. We stayed kind of at a random friend's that that actually had never even been to their house. And then we moved around to another friend's house. It was kind of like, you know, all I got a sense of at that age was that that he didn't know where we were and that was important and that my mom was communicating on some level with him because the house was hers, you know, like, and so he needed to vacate. And, and I do remember um, one night sleeping in the same bed with her and being like, is he going to kill us? Like, you know, like that was my question that I, it wasn't beyond my uh, realm of reality, my reality that he could actually do something like that. You know, <laughs> like it was just like, Oh, cause he's that scary. Um, and, and then do go ahead. you remember like, the emotions that you're having. Cause you know, for me, as it related to, you know, dysfunction and chaos going on like for me in the moment, you know, I would get like a, like an adrenaline rush. Like it was almost exciting, you know, but I never really felt sad. I'm sure I was scared, but probably the adrenaline was like covering the fear. So I'm just curious, you know, that's obviously an extremely, extremely traumatic experience to have that happen. And where were you yeah. mentally? Well, so it's interesting. So there, there's definitely scared. Um, but there was actual, the actual act of moving and fleeing, I actually remember as like, like a joyous experience. Like, yes, you know, like, we're, like, let's do this. Like, we're free. You know, like I did, I had zero attachment to my father emotionally. Like, it was like, let's get away. You know, like there was not like, um, mixed feelings like you get in some, you know, separations, like where, you know, between the parents, like, I was like, this is what I've been uh, hoping for, for a very long time. You know? like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so part of it was exciting. Yeah. And the, the second house that we stayed in the one that I, that we were there longer actually was actually like a, to me, it was like a mansion. So it was like, kind of like, cool, you know, like, I remember, like, it was so luxurious there at a pool and like, you just do whatever you want, you know? Um, oh. So I was living. Wow. Living, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and before you left, was it, what was going on in your home? Was that, was that a secret from the rest of the world like was there anybody any family members that were aware that you know you and your mom were getting physically abused so that's an interesting thing so as a child i didn't realize that um but that i've uncovered in adulthood that yes there was some secrecy in the family so the the event that launched it launched us into having to flee works out like this my mother was never really in love with my father and she was having an affair and so she was not coming home because she was having an affair mm -hmm. which is i would be frustrated too if i was my father i guess you know like that would yes. be concerning and so he already is an alcoholic and so he's drinking and binge drinking i have no idea that my mom is having an affair i don't even know what that is you know and what 
one night I did what I was always doing as a child. I always always to myself. I wasn't ever hanging out with them. I was always watching TV and and I had a I had a Rottweiler actually, which was my dog, which is a great dog to have if you're, you know, scared. <laughs> and I was watching movies and fell asleep actually in their bed. My mom, I, I, the next morning I woke up to my mom being like, Hey Eric, we have to, we have to go. And yeah. I, we went downstairs and my dad in a blackout, I'm assuming, or maybe fully conscious had torn up our entire house and like ripped up all the cushions, emptied the content contents of the refrigerator. And then we had this yeah. coffee table that he left like eight or nine knives standing straight up and down in there. So that was the threat, right? That was the final straw that seemed like a death threat. Um, what I did find out in terms of your question is that on weekends, so I was either by myself or I would go off to my grandmother's, but on my dad's side. And my grandparents would come and they would take me and it would be like a little mini vacation on every weekend. The way that it's now being framed to me in adulthood is that they knew and that my mom would tell them, even though she wasn't, they weren't her parents, what was going on. And they came to remove me to keep me safe. Mm. So they enabled it, you know what I mean? And that was my mom's abuse. The other piece to that, though, is that my mom wasn't fully aware of mine, you know, so I was also being abused. Not when, in, in, when I think about it, not when she was around, it was when she wasn't around that I was also being abused. So by your dad. Yes. And did you, did you never, that was going to be my next question. Like, did you ever tell anybody like your mom or anybody? I mean, I, I think I did, but I don't know, you know, like, um, there was overreactions when my mom would like, I remember I got, got in trouble for like hiding a report card or something like that. Right. And I was like, there was like a huge overreaction. Like you cannot tell dad, you know, like that, like, like breaking down, like falling down and being like, do not tell dad. So I don't know if that is, enough um i think i assume that she knew that i think one of the important things to know is when i'm an only child and we're i didn't even grow up near other kids like i really believed that this is the world <laughs> you know like that this was this yeah. is how the world is and that that this was kind of just like an unknown thing that my dad is an abuser and my mom would know that and it, you know like I never occurred to me until adulthood that maybe she wasn't seeing it because I don't recall her having been around when I was abused. Wow. I guess what, what was your awareness of like what was going on? Like, did you know that your mom was having this affair? Like did either one of your parents use you as like emotional support? That's an interesting question. So like, uh, I didn't know there was an affair, but I do looking back, think that maybe my mother use me as emotional support. The thing to know about my mother is she's very strong. And I think if anything, I still think this, that even though my dad was abusing her, he was probably scared of her, you know, like she was the mighty one, you know, like, and she was a very, very strong woman. You know, if anything, I know that I'm very much like her. She probably thought that 
she can handle it. You know, like it wasn't, she wasn't scared so much. Um, at least I never got that impression as a child. And she did though, we spent a lot of time together because I grew up far away from my schools. I grew up near her work. So when she would drive me to the babysitters or to school, it was an hour long drive each way. And uh -huh. she was very open to me. So she talked about, I remember I found out about gays and lesbians, you know, when I was like nine years old asking her questions, she would tell me all about it. And, you know, like this is, she was a very open person. So she kind of parentified me yeah, there. Like inappropriately, like probably not the right age to have some of those conversations. Well, then after that, after we left my dad, that evolved into, she was telling me about her sex life. Oh my God. And, and it's funny because I didn't realize until Did I started she stay with that. this guy that she was having the affair with? Eventually that was the guy she ended up with, but she had uh, many other guys immediately afterwards. Okay. And there was a lot of open sexuality and it wasn't until I was with that therapist, you know, that I was talking about earlier that I found out that that was a form of sexual abuse. I had never even considered. It's like, she was telling me who was the best sex she ever had. And by this time I'm like 12 or 13 and I was finding pictures of her naked and sex toys and videos. And there were men being brought home and I was hearing it and like, you know, seeing like fluids all over the house and it just, you know, like it <laughs> That's fucking gross. I know, I know, I know, sorry, but that, that happens, you know? <laughs> oh, um, wow, <laughs> fluids. Okay, so now, you know, you're 11, you're with your mom, you know, she's sharing with you, you know, about her sexual escapades, like, what else yep. is going on? When did you start um, drinking? And Well, so that's interesting. So the, so the original drinking happened even before we left, right? Like, so, so I was allowed to have a beer if I wanted one. Right. Since and I didn't, when? it didn't, what age? since, since as far as I can remember, but I do remember having two beers at like nine, right? Like, like, they were hey, like oh yeah, have, have a beer, try it. Like, yeah, like, yeah, did yeah. Did they offer it or did you ask? No, I asked, I asked, they didn't offer it, but I did, continuously taste beer because I was also their bartender. Like, so my mom wasn't an alcoholic, but she was, she was always doped up on benzos. And it, in order, she would, this is how she would phrase it. She would, in order to be around my dad, she would have to continuously drink mm -hmm. around him. And so like, I was always being like told to, to, Hey, can you fetch us beer or open wine for us and i was allowed to to okay. sip i always wanted a sip of those things you know did you know but, that your dad was an alcoholic did you know what actually, an alcoholic was not completely but i knew that his drinking was some kind of issue correlated. like yeah i well i need not not just correlated like i knew that there was i didn't know what alcoholism was but i knew that that he had um, a drinking problem, I would say, like, and that, that that's how it was being phrased in the family. Like, even my grandparents and his sister would be saying, oh, your dad has a drinking problem. So I knew enough of that. And um, I knew enough to know that he would turn. So I don't know what kind of your, I'm not hope I'm not over disclosing your 
identity, but you also have, I don't know if you're the type that has a turning point. I'm not actually, but my dad would drink and it would be just kind of like drunk. And then all of a sudden he would turn into a new person. And that was the abuser um, to my mom, right? Like he would just, it would like, he wasn't even there. He wouldn't even make sense. Like, but it was like unstoppable. Could you, you know, for me, like, you know, I really developed kind of like a sixth sense. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We're we're very, 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 very intuitive. Yep. Um, Like, so I would, I would, I would, because there were times where I would be in the same room with them. I I didn't usually do that, but like, um, I would know when it was time to start leaving. Yeah. Um, And then I would be listening for sounds of abuse, you know, like that. And then. I used to have this thing, it's really fucked up where, um, cause I witnessed so much abuse to my mother and I realized I'm not even really a small fraction of it, yeah. but I had names for these different episodes. Like one of them I called dinosaur fight because it reminded me of some weird claymation video I saw as a child of two dinosaurs fighting and like one particular, <laughs> one particular fight. Yeah, one particular fight. And then there was another fight that I remember uh, where a book, like I I think it was about bills or something that it obviously was not about bills, but um, but they a book flew from like it was smacked out of their hand and flew at me. So it was like the the bills fight, you know, like, dude, I had names for all of them. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if 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 you're gonna have to, you know, go through this experience, you might have you might as well have some fun with it and give it a name, you know? Right. It was probably a coping thing, you know. It was like, okay, let's let's rename these to dinosaur fight. (laughs) Dinosaur fight is the one that I'm like, God, Eric, that's weird. (laughs) What did I remind you? Like Super Smash Brothers or what was that? Yeah, yeah. I can't explain it. There was like an old claymation video of two tyrannosauruses going like this, you know, like um, with their small hands, like clawing at each other. And I remember it was taking place in our kitchen and that's what it looked like to me. And I think that fight happened when I was like five or six, you know, did your parents not have elbows or what? <laughs> yeah, it must have seemed like that to me. <laughs> so funny. Um, okay, so you, you know you you were drinking. So then, when did it become more of a thing for you? So more of a thing, I would say, age thirteen. Okay. Yeah, thirteen probably. And so, like, this is a couple years later. And what had happened after we left is that my mom became this bar fly, you know, like, and she was constantly picking up men. She would take me to um, bars. Um, yeah. I remember like she would just keep me in the car and then she'd come out and check on me every after every drink or something like that. I'd be playing Game Boy or um, some one time she got the bars to let me in. Like, so I'm just like this 12 year old sitting there like eating sandwiches late at night, you know, like and they the that the they they would make a sandwich in the back of the bar even though it didn't serve food just so that they could say if the cops came in like oh we serve food (laughs) (laughs) you know crazy shit like that um and so eventually i didn't want to go there and i was able to stay at home the only reason she did that was because i was terrified of being home alone i thought someone was always going to murder me like and Eventually, when I became a little older and started to be okay being home, I started to be extremely experimental. And the first, I remember, weed that I 
smoked was my mom's that I got out of the freezer. Did you have that and like, that one? Is that called like the freezer weed? Did you have a... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, and, and as a lot of people's experiences with weed, I didn't feel anything. So I was like, oh, this is pointless. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, there was a, you know, drinking of the liquor around there. But, you know, there was also some openness with my mom. Like I, like I remember in sophomore year in high school, like I had a drinking party at my house and I was like, mom, I'm having some kids over who were also sophomores and we're going to have alcohol. She's like, that's fine. And one of them threw up. Um, and then she like, you know, she washed his pants and like, you know, cause he threw up on it and like, she just like took care of it. It's no big deal. You know, it was like, so I would, there was an openness around that drinking. Mm-hmm. So my experience, you know, was that I always knew that my childhood was less than ideal, that it definitely impacted me a lot. I just wasn't aware um, of how much. So I'm wondering, what did you think about your childhood? Like, did you know that it was really fucked up? Were those like repressed memories? That's interesting too, because there are some key abuse memories that I knew was, you know, I always knew like, so the knives in the table memory actually was a memory that I would surface every single day in my life. And I would feel it, you know, like feel what it looked like to see those knives. So I knew that that happened. That wasn't repressed. And, and, and I remember in my recovery journey, getting some relief around that and being like, wow, that's a fucking miracle that I don't think about that every day. Um, but there were other memories when I started working with that therapist that came up and were, Oh, I had never thought about that. And actually now my mind actually focuses on those not every day, but I'm like, wow, that is actually a really pivotal memory to me. And I didn't even think about that. Like, like the one that there's a specific one I'll tell you about, like, my dad had this characteristic of when he would abuse me that he would back me into a corner in a wall and strangle me and then like threaten to punch me or hit me. And he would escalate the threat if I cried. And mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. I would be crying, but the message is like, you have to stop or you're going to get hit. Right. But the more he's doing that, the more I want to cry. How that manifests in my life today is like, well, I don't express myself. I don't tell people when I'm vulnerable. I don't open up. And so I think that that's why that's so at the forefront, because now, you know, 11 years into my sober journey, I'm like, wow, I'm struggling with that. Oh, no wonder, you know, I've got this rooted thing where I was being told that to cry or be vulnerable, you're going to get hit, you know, so you have to you have to scale it back. You have to turn Mm -hmm. it down. Mm -hmm. You obviously went through some really, really, really horrible and painful shit um, that you didn't deserve. But, you know, I know a big part of this work is that it's not uh, about blame. And so, and that doesn't mean that we don't, have our feelings and acknowledge what happens or whatever. But I'm just kind of like, you know, you, you were experienced some really, really fucked up shit. And I'm just curious, you know, how, how do you feel about that today? Like, 
has it changed? Yeah, that's good. You know, blaming how you feel towards your parents. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, being in recovery, I have experiences over the years with others that I kind of help who also have these kinds of issues. And I always try to explain my experience around blame, right? And like, whose part? And I say, you know, obviously, I don't have a part in my abuse, you know, like, but what I do have is, um, in terms of my mother, I have learned to have empathy, mm-hmm. because I think about, and it's, dark as my dad's abuse was to me, he was actually much worse to my mother, you know, actually. And there were broken bones and bloody sweaters and things like that. And I think if I had that experience now, you know, I might also not know what the hell to do, you know, if I have a 11 year old or 12 year old and I've just been freed, I might make some bad decisions, you know? Um, And so that I have empathy for her with my dad, the way that I've actually moved on is I actually don't have, well, I do have some empathy for him, but I also see my dad as perhaps maybe a little bit of a psychopath actually. And, and so that I can have empathy for the fact that he might actually have like a a diagnosis or actually no diagnosis, but he's not really there, you know? And Mm -hmm. I don't feel bad for him but and i don't have a relationship with him either i'm okay with that but i also don't like i'm like okay he was he was kind of just one of those monsters that sometimes happens you know like Mm -hmm. it it wasn't about me or you know like he's mad at me he was like just a very disturbed a very disturbed and sick man just like you can recognize like I, i i hate to say it like a serial killer, like is like, actually it's not even, you're not dealing with a normal person. You know, yeah. their mind is wired differently. That's yeah. how I see him. And, and actually it's funny. Um, a couple of years ago I was at a lunch with, um, his, so my grandfather died and we had a funeral and it, that, that family has been totally ravaged by trauma. Right. And at, I saw my dad for the first time in 10 years and like, <laughs> and and wow. his sister was there and and his aunt who is my great aunt who is also like a grandmother to me and um his sister's family and we were all like i had kept in touch with those people not my dad and we were all like giggling about like oh this is, this is the first time you see your dad in 10 years it's so weird and then we asked him it was a friday he's in his late 60s we we're like hey do you want to go have a lunch you know like you know, your dad just died. Your son, you haven't seen in 10 years is here. And he was like, Oh, I'm busy. And then he like left and it was just like no emotions. And like, we laughed about it. And then at that lunch, my aunt, they didn't even realize it. Um, what told a story about how my dad used to, um, and she said it as almost like a comical, like story from childhood, even though it's sick, my dad used to torture cats. And in that same thing, in that same story, in that same lunch, they talked about how my dad once set my other aunt's um, backyard on fire 
And if you know about the classic, and I think these are irrelevant, but the classic um, symptoms of a psychopath, Mm -hmm. it's like pyromania, um, abusing animals, Mm -hmm. and then bedwetting is the third one. Mm -hmm. I was like, if we'll get the trifecta, you know, if you just say that you have some experience around that. But, you know, by then, (laughs) by then I already knew those feelings and so all i got out of hearing those stories was like oh what a relief you know like like that thank god because i think that's actually what was happening there he was just a psychopath yeah well we've obviously been talking about some rather dark (laughs) is it weird that i'm laughing is it weird that i'm laughing no okay Um, (laughs) it doesn't affect me as much as i you know i've i've had some awareness around these things so it doesn't And it's your story and it shaped you into the person that you are today. Sure. I'm happy who I am today. So it's also like, okay. Yeah. I'm grateful for my experiences as well, you know, because it's given me, um, you know, depth as a human. So, but to um, end this on a more positive note, you know, I'd like to, you know, to give some hope for those who may be listening, just, you know, like what, like what growth, has looked like, or if there's been a particular experience where you can see that you really have um, rewired these, you know, this faulty programming that you had as a child. Sure. Have there been any like profound experiences or moments that you've had? Yeah, I'll tell you a couple, right? So um, talk about how the knives and the table got removed for me, that memory. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of one of the most and I hope I don't cry. One of the most amazing ever happened to me. <laughs> well, so um, mine happened in 12 step work, right? So like I was, I, I struggled when I first sought recovery from my own alcoholism for a long time. I went in there and I was like, uh, oh, these people do not get it. Like, you know, like they are not having the experiences I'm having. And I, kept myself traumatized is what I did for years. Mm -hmm. And then one, you know, great change or sequence of events happened where I started to make some traction. And then at one point about a year sober, um, I started to work with a sponsor. And for those who don't know what that is, you know, someone who guides you through this process, he he asked me, well, have you done a four step? And I said, no. And he goes, um, he goes, well, we need to do that because I don't want you to die. <laughs> and I was like, I was really like, what? Like, what? But I also kind of felt like that might be true. And um, I did that. And it was so hard to do that because, you know, the first thing you're going to put is all this shit, right? And so what I did, it was I just all of a sudden, one afternoon was like, I was feeling motivated by my recovery and just feeling very like connected to the process of recovery and wanting to heal. And I just spent an afternoon. I was like, look, it doesn't even matter Mm -hmm. how I write it, Mm -hmm. whatever that comes to my mind, I'm just going to write it, even if it only makes sense to me. So there would be like knives in the table, dad, you know, like Mm -hmm. mom, like finding pornographic photos. And like, I just did this whole thing and, you know, I, I had separated and then I went and met, this person who was going to listen to me share that. And um, I remember I went through mom first, which was tough, you know, and, and they were identifying it. And then right before I went into dad, like, like I, I paused and I said, 
I said, you know, like, this is stuff that I haven't really ever said. And then I went, I said, and I don't know how I'm going to say it. So I'm actually not even going to do, you know, there's a whole my part thing. I said, I'm just going to to tell you what happened to me. Mm. And I just went through each thing I could remember individually. And as I started to do it, I started to vibrate and like cry and like over in a public place. So it was kind of embarrassing, but there weren't that many people around. Mm. And um, that person heard it and they said, you know, you know, God is with you now or whatever. Right. Like, and, and it was weird because at that moment I felt like, well, maybe that, that could be true, you know, like for me. And it put in what I now know is like a positive cognition in this moment that I was feeling all this shit in my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and the main thing I re- re- remember coming away from that experience is with it's like, no fucking wonder it took me years to get sober. Uh, I carried all of that and didn't tell anyone, mm-hmm. you know, I sat there and put it on my shoulders yeah. and tried to make a life out of it, but didn't share it. And like, once I shared it, it felt like I, it's out there, you know, like it just was this brilliant thing. And I remember I had this walk away from that, that meeting where I had to walk back to the, the Muni train. And I was like, wow, I feel fucking different. And I, 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 there's a song that I used to listen to with my mom when we were both being abused called ball and chain by, Oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> called Ball and Chain by Janis Joplin, who my mom would say was a beautiful, beautiful woman. Mm. And every time I used to listen to it before that experience, I would remember the feelings of being abused. And I was like, so weirded out that I was feeling differently. So I was like, let me listen to Ball and Chain and see if I still can stir up my abuse, which is sick, right? Like I want to stir up the abuse and revisit it. And I listened to it and it had no like it's still meaningful, but it had no effect on me. And it was just like, whoa. Okay. So that was the main thing. (laughs) Now in EMDR recovery, I've also had those experiences too, you know, Um, and now understand a little bit how trauma is living inside of me. Right. Like, so the, the experience many years later into recovery, when I'm working with my therapist, um, we were working over, this notion that I couldn't cuddle with my own partner, you know, because um, I just would feel uncomfortable touching him in the bed, you know, like I could not have him in the bed. We've been together for years, but I would always been uncomfortable. And so I mentioned that. And then we went and we found a negative cognition from childhood around that through EMDR work that my dad had shoved me out of the bed one time as a, like a real, this was probably like six or five I was sleeping next to him while he was napping. And then he like just kind of shoved me out of the bed and I fell off the side of the bed. And when she was guiding me through that, she put in a positive, um, (laughs) positive cognition. And what that looks like is you already, you already drafted. She's like, um, she's once that was stirred up, you say, I am lovable and filled with ease. And it was weird because in this like weird state, like she put that in there. And now, you know, afterwards, when I would cuddle with my partner, the very first thought in my mind and my current partner, which is a different partner, is 
I'm lovable and filled with ease. You know, like it's the weirdest thing. It's like, it really works. You know, it's like, oh, I see. It's now implanted. So when I have this kind of sensory thing, I'm always conjuring up that thought. And so I think there's real potential for um, healing here. You know, Mm -hmm. it's about understanding where this stuff is living, Mm -hmm. understanding how we don't always realize that we need to talk about it or share it or, you know, like identify it. And then we can build on top of that once we do. So there is, because I know that some people who have traumatic experiences like mine think, well, I don't even want to think about it. Mm. Okay, I get that. You know, that's that's a way of healing in a way because it's not revisiting and it's uncomfortable to revisit. Um, but I do think that the path through it is by looking at it. Yes. I am. Uh, I agree. Well, this has been really amazing. And you are a very strong um, and courageous person and very inspirational. And I'm so glad that we sat across from each other one night and knew yeah. we're adult children and we loved Real Housewives. Well, <laughs> and thank you for doing this, you know, and like looking at this stuff in this way, because I mean, you know, this is how, how we heal, you know? Yeah. This shit no joke. well thank you so much well that wraps up today's episode again congrats on making it through i really hope that you heard something that was beneficial to you please check out the show notes for additional resources to help you on your own journey you can find me on instagram at adult child pod don't be shy i would love to hear from you next week We're talking blowjobs, slut shaming, and being gay when your dad is a pastor. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise. Let it all go.